grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. Last week, if you were with us, as we continued walking through the book of Exodus, we celebrated the good news that after 400 years of slavery and suffering, Israel was finally free from Egypt. Moses led the entire nation out of bondage, which was about 2 million people at the time. After God's judgment came down on the Egyptians and Pharaoh himself through a series of plagues, the people actually begged them to leave, and they walked out victorious. And and we saw how all of that prefigured the resurrection of Jesus in a new exodus. But here's what we know, where we are in the story today. We know the exodus for the Israelites is not quite complete yet. While Pharaoh and Egypt have been severely weakened, God is not done with them. And God's people are not in the clear just yet. Today we will see the final act of deliverance, of God's great deliverance of his covenant people. He will simultaneously save his people and destroy their enemies in one big event that we call the crossing of the Red Sea. This is perhaps the most famous story in the entire Old Testament. And for the nation of Israel, this was the story, the most significant event in their history. This was the moment that would go on to define them as a people. This miraculous event was a lot like how we view the cross and the resurrection today. It was that significant for them. But before we get to the Red Sea, God pushes Paul's on the narrative. And he interjects some things that he wants his people to know. He wants them to remember their departure from Egypt. He wants to instill this moment in their history by giving them two things they need to do. Let's look at those first. Look with me at Exodus chapter 13. We'll start in verses 1 through 8. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, Is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Here's the first thing God wanted his people to do so that they would remember the exodus. He wanted them to consecrate their firstborn. Now, what did that mean, to consecrate the firstborn? To consecrate means to set apart or to devote something to God. It's to mark something as belonging to him. Okay, but why the firstborn? Well, we've got to understand the significance of the firstborn in the ancient world. In this time and culture, the firstborn male was the most important child. The firstborn had special privileges, receiving more of the inheritance. But that also came with special responsibilities. The firstborn was required to care for his mother and siblings in the event his father passed. So to consecrate the firstborn was to take the most significant offspring of the family and give that child to God. This demonstrated that really the whole family belonged to the Lord. They were all his. 
Now, what would this look like? What would they practically do? Well, that's what we read in verses 11 through 16. If it was a firstborn animal, it says, they were to sacrifice that animal to God. That was the way they gave the animal to him. But what about the firstborn child? Did they actually sacrifice their child to God? No. Instead, what, what God called them to do was to sacrifice a lamb in the place of the child. And by that act, it says the child would be redeemed. That word redeemed or redemption is a very important word in the Bible. We often use that word as a synonym for the word saved, but it's really more than that. To redeem means to buy out. It originated with the act of purchasing a slave's freedom. If you redeemed a slave in the ancient world, you bought their freedom. You paid a sum of money or what they call a ransom, and they got to go free. So when God's people sacrificed a lamb in the place of their firstborn son, they redeemed that son. And this whole act was meant to point God's people back to the Exodus. Look at Exodus 13, jump to verses 14 and 15. And when in time to come, your son asked you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Obviously, the Israelite children in this time were going to do what my kids do to me a few hundred times a day. They say, what are you doing? Mom, what are you doing? Dad, what are you doing? I hear that all day. Notice that's what's going to happen here, and here's the answer. They're going to tell them it's meant to point back to God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. Specifically, this is meant to signify God's killing of the firstborn of Egypt and God's passing over Israel's firstborn. And let's remember, how did he pass over his people? Well, he passed over every home that sacrificed a lamb and painted the blood on the doorpost. So do you see the connection here? Israel is to consecrate their firstborns by redeeming them through the blood of a lamb, just as God redeemed them from Egypt through the blood of a lamb. That's the first thing God commanded Israel to do as they remember the Exodus. Here was the second. It's what they called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. What's what we just read about in the first half of chapter 13. This was a feast instituted for God's people to celebrate every year after Passover. They were required to eat unleavened bread for seven days to commemorate the day. And they didn't have time for their bread to rise, but they had to flee Egypt. And again, the hope was that God's people would pass this down to the next generation. Look back at verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. You see, God wanted his people to remember, to never forget what he did in redeeming them. And so he instilled in them these rhythms. So whenever they consecrated the firstborn or they celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread, every year it was a time to look back and to remember God's redemption. This moment of God redeeming his people in the Exodus was not just a cool moment for the history books. It was the moment that defined them and identified them as the people of God. That's what we see in verse 16. He says, It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. 
What does he mean by that? A mark on your hand or between your eyes? This wasn't literal, even though some Jews took it literal, literally. The idea is that this event should mark them in a lasting way. It should impact every part of their lives and their identity because this event transformed them from slaves to children of God. That's the first thing I want you to see this morning about the Lord's redemption. The first of two points, number one, is this. The Lord's redemption is transformational. It's transformational. The whole idea of redemption is to buy back something and rescue it and reclaim it for a greater purpose. And that's exactly what God did with his people. When he redeemed them from Egypt, he transformed them into a nation of people purchased by him. They belonged to God. They were his. And this will become so important as we move into the second half of the book and learn about uh, the Ten Commandments. But let's keep going and walking through our story as we finally come to the Red Sea. And as we read various parts of this, I want you to notice how this entire event, once again, is orchestrated by God. The crossing of the Red Sea did not take place as a last resort to rescue God's people or some kind of unplanned, desperate act by God that he didn't really want to do, but he had to do it. He didn't know what else to do. No, no, this entire moment is what God has been building up to as he redeems his people and judges their enemies. Look with me at Exodus 13, verses 17 and 18. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Here we begin to see that God is setting something up. God did not take his people the short way out of town, but he intentionally took them the long way around. Why? Well, one of the reasons we see is that he wanted to avoid the Philistines. He didn't think the people were ready for a fight. But there's another reason God leads his people on this strange route. Look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Here again we see God is clearly setting something up. He tells Moses of all the directions to go to turn the people back. Do you see that? Back? I mean, seriously? They're finally free. They're trying to get out. Why in the world would you turn back? Then he does something even stranger. He does something that would be terrible military strategy if you were trying to fight or retreat from an enemy. He has the people camp with a large body of water at their back, enclosing them in. Why does he do this? Well, we see right here that God is enticing Pharaoh to come out and chase Israel. He wants Pharaoh to think the people are lost and trapped 
and right to be captured and taken back to slavery. And to go one step further, God once again hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue Israel. And watch what he says in verse 4. He says this is all so that God will get the glory over Pharaoh and so that the Egyptians will know that Yahweh is the Lord. Now, let's just pause here for a second. Uh, Does this whole scenario fit into your understanding of God? This whole situation from the plagues until now, it kind of upends my modern sensibilities. I tend to think more about God's goodness and kindness and love and mercy and patience for me and for people, which is true. right? And we sing about that and we pray about that and we love talking about that. And that's good. But yet here we have God drawing out this brutal judgment on Egypt, enticing them into the Red Sea so he can kill them. And so he can receive the glory in their defeat. Does that kind of knock you off balance a little bit? Does that compute with the understanding you have of God? How do we connect stories like these about God with the other things we know to be true about his love and mercy? This has led some people throughout history to say that, oh, well, maybe these are just really two different gods, or maybe God changes. You know, the God of the Old Testament, he's the angry God, right? He's the mean God of wrath. Well, the God of the New Testament, he's the nice God. He's the God of love and grace. But that's not the case. We see grace in the Old Testament, and we've been through Revelation. We know there's judgment in the New Testament. So what do we do with this? Look, if we claim to know God and love God, we need to understand who he is, all of who he is. We need to wrestle with this stuff and seek to understand every aspect of his being, even the parts that are difficult. We know that God is good. We also know he is fair and just. And we know that he is in control and exercises that control so that all things work according to his purposes and for his glory. And I think it's good for us to get shaken up a bit by God, to wrestle and to think deeply about this stuff. Let's don't just skip over the hard parts or the parts we don't understand. Let's don't just try to put everything in a neat little box and explain it away. People say, oh, well, you know, really what this means is, you know, it really wasn't like this. It was more like, let's don't do that. Let's don't sugarcoat any of this. These are not fairy tales to be read before bedtime. These are true accounts of the God of the universe. And this God who drowns Pharaoh and his army is the same God we follow today. What does that mean for us? Well, we're going to get there. Come back to that at the end. But let's, let's keep going through our story. In verses 5 through 9, Pharaoh realizes what he's done. He changes his mind again. He gets his entire army ready with all their chariots and horses. And he pursues God's People, Jump down with me to verses 10 through 14. And Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. 
For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Because of the route that God had taken the Israelites out of Egypt, Egypt has now caught up with them. And they're trapped between the mighty army and the Red Sea at their back. How do the people respond? They respond probably like the way you or I would have in this situation. They panic and they snap on Moses. Man, they go off on him and blame him for everything. You should just let us die there, not out here. And they allow their present circumstances to cloud what they just saw God do in bringing them out of Egypt. Friends, let me tell you, that's the way fear works. Fear is very often completely irrational. Because fear is not based in reality, it's based in the future. It's based in the land of what if. What if this, and what if that, and what if this, and what if that. This is one of the reasons God tells us over and over the Bible, it's the most repeated command in all of Scripture, fear not. Because fear causes us to forget what we know to be true. Fear harms us. Moses, he responds to the people with incredible words. He doesn't say, all right, get ready. Get your weapons. We're going to have to scrap here. We're going to have to go at them. Strap up. Let's go. He didn't say that. He says the opposite. He says, hey, fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord. Watch what he's going to do. Just go take a nap. He says, the Lord's going to fight for you. You have only to be silent. Another way to translate that part, you have only to be silent, is, hey, be quiet. (laughs) Be quiet. And watch. Look at verses 15 to 18. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. You mean into the sea? Forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God commands Moses again to do the impossible. To take his staff, lift it up over the sea, and divide the water. Remember, this is the same staff that Moses used to herd sheep and goats in the wilderness as a lowly shepherd. It's a reminder of God's way of using the weak to shame the strong. Notice again that God hardens the hearts of the Egyptians. Why? So that they will go into the sea after them and be killed, so that he will get the glory over Pharaoh and his army, and so that the Egyptians will know that there is no God like Yahweh. In verses 19 through 20, we see the cloud of God's presence moves between Israel and Egypt to protect them for a night. And then we read this in verses 21 to 25. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. 
And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Uh, there's a tendency amongst some modern people today to try to explain away all the miracles of the Bible in a natural way. Oh, well, you know, this was some sort of natural phenomenon where the wind shifted the water around. Or, you know, they probably just waded through some really shallow part of the sea. That's, that's just nonsense. Right? The text tells us it's the Lord who drives the sea back. He brings a strong wind and he parts the sea so that it's not muddy ground, but it's dry. So much so, it says the waters were like a wall on the right and on the left. Imagine the level of trust it took to walk into the middle of the sea where the water is right there being supernaturally held up knowing that it could crash down on you in any moment, and you're toast. It's amazing. God could have taken the Israelites around the sea. He could have somehow built a bridge to carry them over the sea. But no, it says the people went into the midst of the sea. They walked right through the middle. Isn't that the way God often works in our lives? He often takes us right through the middle, but that's a sermon for another day. While Egypt pursues... God once again intervenes. He throws the Egyptian army into a panic, clogging the wheels of their mighty chariots, and they finally come to understand the Lord, Yahweh, is fighting for them. But it's too late. Look at verses 26 to 31. Last part. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Every last person in Pharaoh's army was defeated. And God's people, after making it to the other side safely, turned to see their bodies washing up on the shore. And it says the people feared and believed in their great redeemer. So here's the second truth we learn about God's redemption from this story. Number two, the Lord's redemption is complete. It's complete. One unmistakable part of this story is that God was not going to stop until Egypt was completely destroyed. He was not content to just free his people and weaken their foes. No, he wanted their enemies to be completely defeated, to never be seen again. And now after this, Israel was totally free. They had no reason to fear or worry about Egypt ever again. They were now their own people, and they were God's people. And as God's people today, as we've said all along, these stories are for us too. We have the same God of the Exodus, the same Redeemer who still works in the same way today. And you and I who have trusted in Jesus have experienced a redemption like this except even greater. 
So in our last couple minutes here, let me just go back through our two points again and let me show you what God's redemption means for you and your life today. Think back to our first point. We said, number one, the Lord's redemption is transformational. Remember, to be redeemed means to be purchased, to belong to someone else. And when someone is redeemed by God, they belong to him. We see this in Exodus 13. We also see this in Isaiah 43. Listen to this. It says, but now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. Here's what God says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Because God had redeemed Israel out of slavery in Egypt, they belonged to him. And the same thing is true of us who have been redeemed by him through Jesus today. Romans 14, 8 says, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 19 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. There's that redemption imagery, that that idea of being bought and then being owned by your Redeemer. Those of us who who know Jesus and trust in him have been redeemed. We've been purchased by him. And do you know what the ransom price was? It was his life. Jesus gave up his own life in our place. That was how he redeemed us through the cross. And as a result of him paying our ransom, we leave slavery to sin And we belong to him. This is what is at the root of our transformation. We are no longer dead in our sin, but we have been made alive in Christ. We are no longer slaves, but we are children of God. We are no longer his enemies, but now we are called his friends. To follow Jesus and to become a Christian is not to add on a religion to your life. It's not to make some small changes and start going to church and start trying to be a better person. To be a Christian is to fundamentally alter who you are. This is why we call it conversion. It's a complete change. Everything in your life is affected by Jesus. Your life is no longer your life. You no longer live for yourself, but you live for him. So just like God's people, the Israelites, when we give our lives to Jesus, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are consecrated and set apart to be holy, and we are never the same. The Lord's redemption is transformational. Here's the second and last thing we learned about God's redemption. Number two, we said the Lord's redemption is complete. Let's go back to that difficult part of the story concerning God's brutal judgment of Pharaoh and the Egyptian army. We're going to talk next week more about what it means for God to have enemies and what he does with his enemies. But let's simply note right here that those who come against God and his people will fall. The reason Pharaoh and his army were destroyed is because they stood in the way of God's salvation of his people. So God did not partially save his people. He completely saved them. And he did so by completely destroying the ones who stood in their path. And this is meant to point us today to the way God redeems us completely. The New Testament teaches us that the ones standing in the way of our redemption today, they're not a foreign nation like Egypt. We're not physically bound in captivity like Israel, but we've been bound spiritually by sin. We are attacked by God's chief enemy, Satan, and ultimately we are cursed with death. 
But just as God so thoroughly and completely defeated Israel's enemies, he has also so thoroughly and completely defeated ours as well. He did that through the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. Listen to these verses. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, because of Jesus, all of our sin... All of our unrighteousness has been completely forgiven and removed. The enemy of sin, gone. Hebrews 2.14 says that through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And we read in Revelation 20.10 that the devil, Satan himself, will be thrown into the lake of fire where he will suffer forever. Because of Jesus, Satan has already received his notice of defeat and will one day be completely destroyed forever. Enemy number two, Satan, done. And in Revelation 1.18, Jesus said this. He said, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. See, because of Jesus, death has been completely conquered, and we no longer have to worry or fear that day when we take our final breath. Enemy number three, death, gone. So just as the waters of the Red Sea signified the complete redemption of Israel, the cross and the resurrection signify the complete redemption of those who follow Jesus. So when the accuser, Satan, tries to tell you, hey, you're not really redeemed. You don't act like a child of God. Look at your sin. Remember that your redemption is transformational. You've been changed, and you are a new creation in Christ. And when the accuser tries to tell you, are you sure Jesus died for that sin you keep struggling with? Are you sure you're really saved? Are you sure you're worthy of all this? Remember that your redemption is complete. Jesus paid for every single one of your sins, past, present, and future. And he summed it up with his last breath on the cross when he said, it is finished. This is what it means to be redeemed question then for you for me for all of us is this have you been redeemed do you know this great redeemer for yourself have you experienced his redemption if not let me encourage you turn to christ today trust in him the waters are parted the ground is dry will you come through Let's bow our heads in prayer.